I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in our series, Hearing God. We constantly refer to the Bible as authoritative, but how does one live under the authority of a book? In what way is a poem or a genealogy authoritative in my life? If the Bible is God's Word, how do we receive it as truth? And we do a lot of talking at Van City about the Bible. My first Bible, the first Bible that was really mine, just for me, was a gift from my parents. It was tiny, like a, one of those hotel drawer Bibles. It was cornflower blue with the gold gilded pages. Its cover was embossed with the image of like a lion spooning a lamb. And uh, in the lower right-hand corner was my name, the long version, Joshua Porter was beautiful. I had never had anything engraved with my name, so I should tell you, even as a small child, small child, this little blue Bible was precious to me. Carried it around, looked like a real good Christian as a little as a little child. And I couldn't understand a word of this thing. Uh, not a word. It was a King James Bible. For God's sake, who gives a child a King James Bible? <laughs> But I took it back and forth to church anyway. People were impressed by it, and I liked what they said when they saw me with my Bible. Sometimes I honestly opened it and kind of attempted a passage. It sounded like the way Thor talked in my comic books. <laughs> Very Shakespeare in the park, this thing. Mostly, my grasp of whatever the Bible had to say was assembled not from that little Bible, but from vignettes of Sunday school lessons. And mostly, it was pretty good. God loves everyone. I got that much. Jesus died to save sinners. He came back to life. All that stuff. A picture hung on the white-painted cinder block wall of the kids' class at New Providence Baptist Church. And it depicted smiling children as they encircled Jesus, and he reached out to pat them on their little heads. And I loved that picture. And I loved God, and he loved me. Then I got older. And at some point, someone gave me an NIV. Uh, imagine that. And I would read it. I would sit down and actually read from this thing. In my reading, I remember the day and time that I stumbled upon Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, which reads as follows. A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Detests, I said. I gasped. I ran into the other room. This is a true story. I ran into the other room. Mom, Dad, have you seen this thing? How did this get in here? Detests? Is this a typo? What's going on in the Bible? And I remember them squinting, you know, at the tissue-thin pages, and then they, I'd watch their eyes move along. They'd read it, and then they furrowed their brows and made a face like they smelled something terrible. Oh, whoa. And, and then they said, huh, huh, they said. I'm not sure, they said. And I asked the normal questions. But doesn't God love everyone? I thought that was part and parcel of the whole thing. Everyone's a sinner, but God loves everyone, right? And they nodded. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's true. That's right, yeah. And I said, well, then what does this mean? Thus began my many years journey of terrible existential turmoil over the Bible. For years, I combed this thing looking for answers to a very particular set of personal questions, as we all do, and the conversations that these questions provoked typically escalated along these lines. They would begin 
Ordinarily, like that conversation with my parents, gracious, pastoral, accommodating, I'd come to someone like a pastor, an older friend, uh, someone that I trusted or respected, a mentor, and I'd bring them my concerns, and they'd speak kindly and gently at first, like someone, you know, wanting to comfort a crying child. But then I would press my honesty. Uh, I don't understand what I perceive to be a set of contradictions, I would say, or errors, or terrible depictions of God, and the ugliness of my misgivings would induce a few squirms as the conversation continued. The reassurance then became tough love eventually. They'd be like, look, man, you just need more faith. You need less doubt. Return from this dangerous path, young doubter. And so I was, I felt often misunderstood because I was not out to trounce on the Bible. I wanted the smiling Jesus from the painting on the wall in my Sunday school classrooms back. And I was worried that he was being crowded out of the Bible's pages forever by the Bible itself. Then the Bible that I wanted to understand was being wielded against me. Imagine that. The Bible I wanted to understand quoted against me to shut down my effort to understand it. This is a very conflicting place to be, I have to tell you. The Bible as a weapon used to silence conversations about the Bible. That would happen to me again and again and again and again. So I figured I'll try to learn some stuff on my own, you know, the narcissism and all that. And this is where things get really embarrassing. I'm going to warn you before we get there. It's not going to be a good look for me. I hate this story. Uh, So I figure to myself, I'll go learn some stuff. So I read some books. This is years and years of life. I got some schooling. Uh, My little Bible reading brain was blown wide open. It was a whole thing. I couldn't believe it. I was invigorated. I loved this season of learning. I felt like, you know, the cave guy in Plato's whole thing. And I came up out of the cave. Whoa, I can't believe it. I had no idea the world was so big. And by the world, I mean the Christian tradition and theology and all that. And I did find answers to many, not all, but many of the questions that had so troubled me for many, many years. And I loved God, and He loved me. Now, fast forward a few years into this process. A lot of time has gone by a specific scene. I'm at dinner with some extended family and in-laws and such. Now, everyone's a Christian in the room, but there's a healthy amount of theological disagreement in the room. And that's normal. That's no big deal. That's true right now, if you didn't know. Um, And I had honestly long ago resolved to disengage from potential arguments in these environments. Someone says something, you know, that I find biblically egregious or theologically dubious or, or some such thing at the dinner table. I just say, pass the salt. Ignore it. You know, does it really matter? And nothing sours dinner quite like a weird Bible argument that only a few people are in on and everyone else is like, whoa, it's getting heavy. However, on this particular evening, someone in the room was sort of insisting on engaging me. So they asked a question to the room, you know, I got a few half-hearted answers, and then they asked me directly. I tried to shrug it off. I said, who knows? And they pressed. They said, well, I'm asking, what do you think? I want to know what you think about this, they said. Look me dead in my eyes. Now things go back and forth like this a few times until the back and forth becomes more awkward than whatever argument is about to happen if I just answer the question. So I gave an answer. Not even a huge issue or anything, but I knew that it would be divisive given present company. And then, as I suspected, my answer was met with immediate pushback. Well, the Bible says, the conversation went. 
And, uh, and then it turned into some of the whole, you know, you young people just need to read your Bibles, all that stuff. I was very annoyed. Not my best moment. Uh, now, in the honesty, or the interest of honesty and vulnerability, I'll tell you this terrifically asinine thing that I said. I said, and I quote, because it's traumatized me, I traumatized myself, I said, I, I wrote down the quote here, I don't want to get into a Bible measuring contest with you because I will destroy you. <laughs> it's not cool, it's not, I mean, it's funny now, but just absolutely indefensible. It was immature, it was rude, it was mean-spirited, and it was mind-blowingly arrogant to say nothing of the fact that, for all I knew, this person could have known much more about me than whatever it was that we were, about whatever it was we were arguing. Now, apparently, all that school doesn't keep one from behaving like a convinced idiot. Nothing like a a little piece of paper to make someone delusional with self-importance, which was absolutely me on this occasion. And what's weird is that even though my limbic system was overheating, and I'm sure that I was acting out of all those stories in my past about previous Bible conversations, we tend to do that, whatever. As soon as I had loosed those words into the room, I'm not sure if this has ever happened to you, but it's like the moment they were out, I could see them for how ugly they were and how ridiculous it sounded, but I, I was too sped up to see reason, and you know, I, and I was unwilling to backtrack in the moment. My wife Abby kind of came in and broke up the argument. <laughs> she was like, "All right, that's enough, you two, you know. And then the evening lumbered forward in all its awkward glory. Now, the next morning, and I went, you know, feeling self-justified, and well, I should have said that because I was, you know, whatever. I went home, got up the next morning to pray and spend time reading the scriptures, and before I could even say anything to God, I just felt overwhelmed with conviction. Let's just say I got a stern talking to from God. In fact, I felt very strongly that he asked me to do the last thing I wanted to do in the whole world, which was to call the person with whom I had argued, and then he added, and everyone else who overheard the argument, one by one, to apologize and ask for forgiveness, which was, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, a very humbling experience. Uh, I'll tell you that for free. And not because I'm so proud that I can't bear to admit when I'm wrong. It was honestly because each phone call forced me to relive exactly how foolish I had been and to repeat what I had said, which sounded worse and worse the more I said it. But everyone I called was gracious and forgiving, and no one was rude to me. Everyone forgave me right away. But it wasn't until I finished the last of the calls and sat back, taking a deep breath, feeling relieved, um, that I realized what I'd done. I had used the Bible as a weapon to silence conversations about the Bible. It had been done to me, and I'd now done it to other people. All those years of reading in classrooms and even prayerful meditation had not erased my story with the Bible. Now, Fast forward to just last weekend. A friend of mine invited me out to his church in San Diego to teach. In the evening, they hosted this Q&A thing, and someone asked, and I'm paraphrasing here, it was a good question, but they asked, how can I make my peace with the deeply conflicting collection of writings that we call the Bible? What am I supposed to do, they said, just have faith and keep reading? And I smiled as I read the question, and I thought to myself anyway, sort of, yeah. And I looked out at this room full of people wrestling with the scriptures. Many of them were younger than me and wandering through the same lonely places that I'd once been in their journey with the Bible. 
And I thought to myself how winding and strange and frustrating and wonderful that journey has been. And I told them, honestly, I love the scriptures. I love them. But that's just some of my story with the Bible to date. And we all have one. You have one. None of us come to the scriptures with an unblemished, holy, uncomplicated, open mind. And not all of that is our fault. But it's the way it is. And it's worth talking about. Now look, I get it. We talk about the Bible all the time at Van City. We warn everyone in our basics class what they're getting themselves into. We're big on the Bible, all that stuff. There are all sorts of reasons for that. One is that we absolutely believe that biblical illiteracy is among the greatest, most pressing problems for followers of Jesus in our time and place. Some of us have been raised with the Bible. Others of us are relatively new to the whole thing. And in both groups and everywhere in between, many, many people just don't know how to read the dang thing. And that is in no way a commentary on anyone's intelligence or literary potential. The Bible can be a very difficult book to read. The Bible is an ancient library of writings drafted by dozens of authors across multiple continents in several languages over several centuries. It is the most complex and sophisticated feat of literary artistry in history, and it's also more than that. Of course, the Bible can be a difficult book to read, but the Bible is the mediated authority of God. It is, as we've said across the last few weeks, the primary way that we receive the voice or word of God. We are in a series all about hearing God. Over the next few weeks, the plan is to talk about how God speaks through the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit, how God speaks through your brothers and sisters or through worship or through creation itself. We are going to talk about listening prayer and prophecy and words of wisdom and words of knowledge, all that. But we knew from the outset that even though those things are complicated, like even divisive concepts and practices, pretty much everyone wants to hear from God regardless of how skeptical they feel about any given mode of hearing God's voice. Some of us, for example, remain forever skeptical of the prophetic word, the person who gets on stage and says, I feel as if the Spirit is saying this, the Specific words of knowledge said from stage most weeks at our church. Things like, I see a young woman with blonde hair and you fill in the blank. Can't we just see what, the, what God says in the Bible? These people think to themselves. Do, must we have all these flowery spiritual words on stage from the Holy Spirit? On the other hand, some of us, maybe even more of us, would always prefer the prophetic word over the Bible. The Bible is a weird old book that rarely, if ever, activates some kind of transcendent experience as you just sit around reading genealogies and rules about mildew and dead bodies. But when someone comes to you or stands on stage and says in the Spirit some incredibly specific thing that pierces your heart and soul and you know it's for you, man, then you know the voice of God changes everything. And the truth is that we receive God's word both ways, in the scriptures and from the Spirit. And at Van City, we want to learn both things, and we want to practice both things, and we want to embody both things. But we have ordered this series to begin with the scriptures for a reason. God does choose to communicate to and through us today 
by his spirit. Yes, we believe that. We've given space to that belief every single Sunday for the last seven years. But we also realize that we are imperfect conduits of God's voice. The scriptures, on the other hand, disciples of Jesus have believed for hundreds and hundreds of years are exactly what God wanted to say. Now, that doesn't simplify them. It doesn't scrub from these pages artistry or metaphor or poetry or symbolism or literary complexity, but it does organize the means by which we learn to hear God's voice in all ways. The scriptures are the foundation, the primary means by which we receive the word of God, and the only infallible means by which we understand the teaching of Jesus and his way of life. In other words, any and every other way we hear God's voice must be assessed according to the truth of the scriptures. God will not contradict himself. The first thing that we ask as we test any claims of God said is, is it consistent with the truth and authority of the Bible? So, tonight, before we move on to the ways God speaks through his people and to the soul and through worship and and, in creation, let's spend one more evening here with the foundation of all that, with the Bible's authority, and ask this important question before we move on. How is the Bible authoritative? And, And by that, I mean this. How do you submit your life to a book? Because it would be really easy if the Bible read like an obvious instruction manual, but anyone who's flipped around through the thing realizes that it doesn't do that. We love the way that theologian J.I. Packer describes the disposition with which he approaches the Bible. He says this, Submitting to the Bible's authority is an advanced commitment to receive as truth from God all that Scripture is found on inspection actually to teach. And we love this paradigm because, yes, it acknowledges a predisposition to the Bible's truth. That's the advanced commitment to receive God's truth. But it also acknowledges that determining what the Bible actually teaches will only be found on inspection. In other words, you're holding two dispositions concurrently, even though they are often understood as enemies. One, we are committed to the truth of God in the Scripture. We will not dismiss nor denounce the inspired writings of the Bible, even when we don't immediately like them. But two, we do acknowledge that the Bible requires interpretation. We will not disrespect the artistic sophistication of the Bible by reducing it to a moral encyclopedia or an entirely literal, linear manual for life in the modern world. But this is not, ordinarily, the default dynamic out of which we approach the Scriptures. Instead, we tend to assess the Bible in service to what Eugene Peterson called the replacement trinity, wants, needs, and feelings. Wants are the, you know, the idea that human fulfillment lies in the satisfaction of our innate desires. Our happiness and self-actualization are contingent on us getting what we want. Needs. When we open the scriptures, thus, pre-convinced of that which is necessary for a good life, and where we find those needs affirmed in the Bible, we receive them. If it sounds like we want to hear, great. And where there's contradiction between what we want and what the Bible says, well, you know, if it's between our felt needs and the Bible's old words, then the Bible has to go. 
And that is finally what uh, leaves us with feelings. My own emotional reaction to the words and stories and teaching of the scripture determines their legitimacy. This is one that I've articulated myself in different seasons of my life, and I've often heard from friends. Not a theological argument, and it's not even a dogmatic stance, just I don't think it's true because it doesn't feel right to me. Now, I don't ask why it doesn't feel right. I just know that it doesn't, and that's enough. And the problem is that someone like me could pick on the replacement trinity and make a big stink about how foolish it is, but wants, needs, and feelings are not inherently bad, and they're not always wrong. In fact, wants, needs, and feelings are absolutely an important part of your personhood and your spiritual formation. The problem is us. And I know I'm always on about this, but I can't stress this enough. The idea that we're not always so great is not a uniquely Christian concept. It's not even a religious concept. You can get this from just basic observation in the world. It's a weird world in which we live because so much of our ideological pop culture rhetoric on hyper-divisive issues seems to insist on this ever-present contradiction. People are always on about relative truth, meaning, you know, the kind of shorthand is find your truth, find your own truth, or this is my truth, or speak your truth, as if truth sort of varies from person to person, as if there is never any objectivity to truth. And you see people arguing about the hot-button issues of our time, like gender, for example, especially as it pertains to children, and you hear a lot of pushback to the idea of a sort of shared, settled reality. So, you know, the easy example is some video I watched online of some infamous conservative figure interviewing and arguing with a kind of stereotypical progressive doctor who is a proponent of gender identity ideology. And at one point, the interviewer says that he's interested in reality, and I think his quote was, in getting to the truth. And the doctor asked the question, whose truth are we talking about? The idea of unique personal truth seems to correspond with desire and feelings that define our needs. So there are things that I want in a way that I feel, and now I know what I need. And for someone to challenge or even push back against any of those things is an affront to my personhood or to my truth. It seems as if there's no rubric by which to test or determine whether or not my desire and my feelings might be good or bad. They just are, and there you go, my truth. But then, in the same breath, there's a constant vocal condemnation of and warring against the truth of the other. Because the idea that truth is relative from person to person necessitates that someone else has an idea that's different than yours, or else we'd all have the same truth. The values and ideologies of my enemies are, of course, evil. They're destructive. They must be stopped. They are not true. So everyone acknowledges human corruption. As long as it's in someone else, these other people are really bad, but I'm pretty great. And the story of the Bible is that we are made in God's image. We are God's beloved. We, in that sense, are imbued with value and worth and dignity but we are also compromised. The agency and freedom with which we were created have allowed us to reach for that which is other than God, and as a result, we are broken and bent out of shape and not what we were meant to be. So the instruments of wants and needs and feelings are not completely trustworthy, at least not all the time. We need something 
beyond our flawed reason and compromised desire to trust as authoritative. Again, still not a uniquely Christian or even religious concept. If someone, and here's an easy example, if someone is wanting to embark on like a new fitness regime, they typically defer to some other resource for guidance over and against their own innate desire. They understand that their wants and needs, as they are, have led them somewhere other than where they want to be, and so they reach for external authority on the issue for direction, guidance, information, all that. So me, for example, I figure what I want to do, very genuinely, just baseline, is eat lots of sweets all the time. But I also would like to be a healthy person who survives into the future. So... I'll go look about what other people who have done research and know about what happens in the human body when they eat sweets all the time, and I'll see what they have to say about this stuff. And, huh, would you look at that? They say, don't eat sweets all the time. Go figure. Wellness, therapy, diet, lifestyle, even the most committed find-your-own-truth ideologue understands that what we often take for granted doesn't necessarily correspond with what's true or best and that we need external authority for correction and the best way to live. When we are the ultimate authority of truth, things don't seem to go well. In fact, Ignatius of Loyola defined sin itself as, and I quote, unwillingness to trust that what God wants from me is my deepest happiness. Sin, which means more literally to miss the mark or to fail, is in essence mistrust. No one sins just for the sake of sinning. We sin or we fail when we believe a lie about what is best for us in the world, about what will make us happy. We sin when we trust outside voices and our own desire more than we trust what God says is true. And the Bible argues that there is actual moral knowledge in the universe. Like, so just not just an opinion, not just an arbitrary belief, but there are objectively true, knowable things about meaning and existence. The Hebrew writers call it chokmah, which translates as uh, wisdom. It's not just decent advice. It's how one lives in rhythm with what is actually true and good and best. The Bible understands that in the same way that there are like natural laws in the universe, like gravity and thermodynamics, that kind of thing, there are also moral laws in the universe or relational laws, theological truth that is true regardless of individual wants and needs and feelings. And this is, I think, why the Bible's particular approach to authority confuses so many readers. Because the Bible does have commands. I don't know if you've looked at this thing. They're all throughout the whole thing. Lots and lots of them. But some of them aren't even for the reader. Some are for particular characters in the stories at particular times and places. Other times, we feel very strongly that the Bible should have a command, and there's nothing there. It just sort of reports information about something horrible without explicitly guiding the reader in how they should or shouldn't feel about it. If the Bible isn't an entirely literal, linear, moral, or, or moral manual for life in the modern world, and if it is a story, how do you receive its truth? It's a bit like other questions that people have frequently asked about divisive genres of art. How can a movie about war, for example, condemn war? 
Or how can a novel about, you know, the lifestyle of affluent Wall Street yuppies become a commentary on the ugliness of materialism and greed and excess? A depiction of a thing is not an endorsement of a thing. By telling a story that communicates what is true according to its own unique genre and aesthetic, the Bible becomes much more than just a bald moral guidebook. Or think about some of the most famous sayings of Jesus. For example, the things we quote all the time. Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Or Jesus said, the first shall be last. Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Those aren't actually commands at all. They're just statements about reality. And we, as students of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, we organize our lives around the truth of those statements. Why is more than 30% of the Bible poetry? How the heck is a poem authoritative? Because the Bible doesn't presume to enforce authority by its position only, meaning the Bible doesn't come at you with the whole approach, I'm the Bible, so you just have to listen to what I said. Instead, it speaks authoritatively by powerfully and artistically reporting on what is true. The gospel authors make the point that Jesus taught with authority. It was amazing. He taught as one with authority. But Jesus didn't just go around exclusively barking at people about his rank and position. Though if anyone could have done that type of thing, certainly it would have been Jesus. Instead, what he did most of the time anyway was tell stories. He used parables, his favorite way of teaching. He explained what is true about life and the world through stories. And he called it the kingdom of God. Now, to be sure, Jesus did issue commands to his apprentices, and he did claim authority. But Jesus couldn't appeal to a traditional position, meaning he couldn't walk into a crowd and say, hey, I'm a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, so you have to listen to me. He wasn't in with Rome, the powerhouse of his day, the oppressors. None of the power brokers of Jesus' day cared much for him or what he had to say because he had no rank or position. Jesus understood his authority as the access point to moral knowledge. Or to put another way, Jesus believed he had authority because he had the truth. And the truth is authoritative because it's true. This is the basic logic of biblical authority. First, all authority is rooted in God, who is the source of reality. God is the creator. Without him, there is no reality. So he probably knows what's best, what's true, and what's good. Second, because God is relational and gives of himself, is generous, loving, and artistic, he has chosen to vest his authority in the collaborative voice of prophets and writers and apostles, the creative writings of the Bible. So to accept the authority of the Bible is to accept the authority of God himself. Or put another way, to obey the scriptures is to trust them, which is also trusting and obeying God as an act of relational love. Or conversely, to disobey the Bible's authority is to distrust the scriptures and thus distrust God. When this happens, we live out of alignment with what is true and good and inevitably bring suffering upon ourselves and the world around us because we live not out of reality, not out of truth, but out of lies. 
So the idea is that we submit to the, the authority of God through his mediated authority in the scriptures. But again, it just raises the practical question of how. Like I asked earlier, how the heck do you live under the authority of a poem or, or a parable? How is a genealogy authoritative? How do you accept the authority of a story in general? How is a violent story about war or genocide authoritative? Do you just take like the explicit commands and obey them? And if so, which ones do we pick and choose? Does it matter? Two answers to that. One is theoretical and the other is pragmatic. The theoretical answer begins, again, with the constant reminder that the Bible is not a rule book, it's a story. Thus, it has rules in it, commands, and those commands are right and fitting within their place in the story's context. But if you move them out of their place and context, they are no longer right and fitting. For example, the story documents commands for ancient theocratic Israel that don't apply to the characters in the New Testament, let alone to like Americans in 2023. But this only becomes a problem when you treat the Bible like a manual for life in the modern world rather than a story. In a story, what's important for a character on page one is usually very different from what's best for them in act three of the entire narrative. And that doesn't mean that the stuff in chapter one was bad or mistaken or incorrect. It had its place in the story, and it communicates something true across all time. The Bible's story is replete with that kind of nuance, and it freaks people the heck out. Leviticus and mildew, rules about mildew, really, and menstruation and dead bodies. Is this real? And you hear Bible scholars saying, look, that's not for us in the directly applicable sense because we're not ancient theocratic Israel. And, and then, you know, critics come along with the charge and be like, well, what the heck? Are you just cherry-picking the Bible? You obey these things, not these things? Who are you to pass judgment? But it has nothing to do with reading Leviticus and saying, ew, no thank you. It's about understanding our place in the overall story. It's not enough to learn and implement the Bible's rules. Jesus invites us to step into and live out of the story of the Bible. In his essay, How Can the Bible Be Authoritative?, N.T. Wright argues this. This is a long quote, but you'll be okay. Story authority, as Jesus knew only too well, is the authority that really works. Throw a rule book at people's heads or offer them a list of doctrines and they can duck or avoid it or simply disagree and go away. Tell them a story, though, and you invite them to come into a different world. You invite them to share a worldview or better still, a God view. That actually is what the parables are all about. They offer, as all genuine Christian storytelling does, a worldview which, as someone comes into and finds how compelling it is, quietly shatters the worldview that they were already in. Stories determine how people see themselves and how they see the world. Stories determine how they experience God and the world and themselves and others. Great revolutionary movements have told stories about the past and present and future. They have invited people to see themselves in that light, and people's lives have been changed. If that happens at a merely human level, how much more when it is God himself, the creator, breathing through his word? But if that's too theoretical, here's the practical part. 
There are four basic hermeneutic, meaning like technique for reading the Bible, principles for navigating the Bible's authority and commands. It begins with authorial intent, which means asking as you read what the author intended to say to the original audience. It doesn't mean that none of it intersects with you, but to figure out how it does intersect with you, you have to first ask, for example, what did Matthew mean to say to his readers in the first century? What was Paul wanting to communicate to this one church in Ephesus? And how would that church have understood what he was saying? Next, the Bible is an epic narrative. And while the whole of the story is authoritative for every disciple of Jesus, not every specific command is equally binding to all readers at all times. It depends on where you're at in the story. We live in the part of the story that includes the New Testament church. Crazy, right? Still us. Thus, in living under the authority of the story and our place in it, we obey all the teachings of Jesus, the writings of the New Testament, unless those commands are expressly intended for specific individuals. If you think I'm being weird, think about it, for example. At the end of 2 Timothy, Paul writes, bring me my coat. You can't do that. That is not a command for you. Go ahead and try it. We can't do that. That is for only the gentleman receiving the letter, not us. His name's Timothy. Spoiler. But this also applies to a kind of cultural translation. Certain cultural symbols have evolved over time. So when Paul, for example, commands that we greet one another with a holy kiss, he is tapping into an important and appropriate gesture for his time and place, not instituting this everlasting command for the entire church. The same is true with things like head coverings for women or the dynamics between slaves and masters. It's actually a very short list, and you can find it very easily by accessing very basic biblical scholarship. We don't, we don't make it up. There are centuries of biblical scholarship from all sorts of women and men who have devoted their lives to understanding the world and language of the Bible. So we come to read and interpret within the community of God across centuries. But just because there are commands that we can't follow with exact cultural specificity, that doesn't mean that they're altogether meaningless. Even a command like, bring me my coat, communicates something powerful about God and that time and that place. We translate those few commands into our time and place and ask ourselves why God included them in the story. It may no longer be culturally appropriate, for example, to go around kissing everyone all the time, but we can absolutely learn to greet those in the church with warm affection and kindness. Those are the four principles. To understand authorial intent, the narrative context, our place in the story, and some amount of cultural translation. And again, listen, those things are never worked out in isolation or within the convenience of your own personal preferences. We have the community of God. We have centuries of biblical scholarship to guide and assist us. And get this, those things actually tend to work. It's been going okay for the last 2,000 years. And if someone pokes at the Bible and says, hey, I think this one thing here isn't a really a thing that we have to obey anymore. Well, then the church comes along, looks into it, asks questions. Academics study language and history, and pastors and theologians give prayerful consideration, and we work it out within the community of God's people. It's not perfect. It's not always seamless or tidy, but it tends to work, believe it or not. And then after all that, you have to admit at some point that the Bible must have some level 
of irresolvable mystery. Why else would there be hundreds of denominations and movements and theological perspectives and systems? Even when we all get along, we have to admit we don't agree on every little thing the Bible says. It's a fair question. But honestly, I believe it can be a tad overstated. When it comes to core theological essentials, pretty much everyone agrees that the Bible is very clear. And for 2,000 years, there has been what we call orthodox Christian faith or right belief within Christian faith. And it still holds to those core essentials. There's a reason that we constantly read the Apostles' Creed at our church or the Nicene Creed at church. And those creeds have been read for hundreds of years at churches all over the world right now to this day. And we understand that even when the Bible is as clear as it can be, we still tend to cloud our interpretation of it with all kinds of personal baggage and bias. But in my experience, the weird peripheral stuff in the Bible can be challenging, for sure. I don't mean to make light of it. It's the thing, obviously, I told my whole story. But most of the big-time crises I see around biblical authority aren't about interpreting obscure rules and weird passages. Most people, in my experience, present company included, have problems with what the Bible says very plainly because we just don't like what it has to say. Things about judgment or sexuality or gender or military violence or nationalism or, or money or generosity or social justice which is why the dialogue can't happen according to your own whims and preferences, but within the rich tradition of discipleship to Jesus, stepping into the way the Bible has been understood and obeyed for thousands of years. And to do any of that, you have to read it. None of this necessarily makes it any easier. So to end, here's a story from my own journey with the Bible. This is not a put-on or some obligatory Bible teacher party line. I really do love the Bible. But getting here was a process. And it's something I wanted in spite of how hard it had become. I wanted to be that person from the psalm that Nancy read. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. That kind of language was romantic, beautiful, inspiring to me. I wanted to be that person. And many years ago, I believed that the roadmap to somehow getting from guy with a lot of gripes and unbelief around the Bible to guy who likes the Bible a lot, I believed that roadmap would be reasonably resolving my problems with certain parts of the Bible. If I could do that, I could get from I don't like it to I do like it. So, okay, I don't like this language in Leviticus, or I don't like these war narratives in the book of Joshua, or I feel weird about Jesus' parables when they end with people getting chopped up. That's kind of strange. Or Paul's strange church governance when he says things like, hand this man over to Satan. But the way I figure, if I can learn some helpful interpretive tools, and if I can get more information, maybe I can resolve my misgivings and be able to read the whole thing without squirming so much, and then... I'll be the guy who likes the Bible. But here's the twist. I didn't. I did not resolve all my issues. Some of them I did, but then I found more. Go figure. It's like that. But get this. I am as committed as I have ever been to the study and understanding and thoughtful interpretation of the Bible, but I'm somehow less troubled by being troubled than I've ever been. 
Nowadays, when I'm troubled by the scriptures, I kind of find it interesting. And I wonder, ew, I don't like how that makes me feel. Why? I wonder what that means. Ruth Haley Barton said that most Christians give in to their resistance instead of paying attention to their resistance. Most Christians give in to their resistance rather than paying attention to it. I have definitely found this to be true of myself. So, Barton talks about the spiritual discipline of paying attention to which scriptures I ignore or avoid. Years ago, I had a fight with a close friend. Our first fight, me and this friend. We'd been buddies, but as we shared more life, we ran into the inevitable conflict that happens. We got into it, said some things, and then later had to apologize and clarify and work it out. And I remember as we did that, as we repented and reconciled, he said, I think that you only fight with someone when you're really friends, as if this was kind of a rite of passage in becoming closer. And um, I think that he meant that when, when you actually give yourself to the vulnerability and accountability of true relationship, you make room for the inevitability of hurting and being hurt. Or you can, as many do, carry into all your relationships a kind of parachute. And when conflict arrives and when you don't like what gets said or what happens or, or confronted with the unavoidable feeling involved in knowing someone and being known by them, you pull the cord, an escape hatch. You write them off, you make a room for it, you dress it up with fancy language. You call it part of your mental health or, or healthy boundaries or you focus on what everyone else did. Absolve yourself, avoid the mirror at all costs, create a new narrative Make it real, tell as many people as you can the story as you see it, you the victim, you the star, and build a wall between you and the pain. You can do that, but you'll never know the intimacy that waits beyond that fracture. And unfortunately, so many of us, myself included, have learned to read the Bible that way. When we arrive at deeper intimacy with the scriptures and find something that cuts us to the core or something that we don't like, rather than examining that sense of why is this happening, why do I feel this way, and moving into and beyond it, we protect ourselves by turning away altogether. In one of his most famous songs, King David documents the joy and the agony of repentance and forgiveness after his own disastrous evil sin. And there's one line in that psalm that I've always really loved uh, and it's because it's always made me really uncomfortable. He writes, let me hear joy and gladness. Beautiful. And then he says, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. I didn't like it because one reading sounds as if David is saying that God broke all his bones as a punishment for sin. But another reading that I've found over the years when I've prayed through this psalm again and again in my own time of confession and repentance is the strange, glorious, painful freedom of God's conviction that in the place of actual vulnerability before God through the scriptures, the weight of his conviction can feel as if it pulverizes us, but then, counterintuitively, it leads us to rejoicing. It somehow sets us free, which is everything I love about the Bible in one verse. Mystery, offensiveness, encouragement, pain, joy, clarity, but also mystery. These days, I read things in the Bible that activate me in some way, and I ask myself, why do I feel this way? I wonder, 
what does this reaction reveal about me and what's going on in my soul? And then I wonder and I ask myself the question, can that part of me, whatever it is, the, the troubled soul squirming in front of the text, can that part of me be brought before God in honest, naked vulnerability? This is sometimes called letting the Bible read you. Eugene Peterson said that believers argue with God and skeptics argue with each other. If the first and foremost method of hearing and knowing God's voice is through the mediated authority of the Scriptures, then the Bible is an essential means by which we know and are known relationally by God, knowing and being known in all its imperfect glory, reading the Bible and letting it read us. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us to do so. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.